0: Hello and
1: welcome to episode 844. We got Jonah Berger back because Jonah Berger has got more fantastic insights. If you want to increase your impact, your influence, your persuasiveness with just a few easy shifts of words, wow, Jonah's got the goods. This is exactly the kind of stuff I just eat up. A little bit of a shift for a lot of bit of difference. So, so good. So you'll learn one, the simple two-letter shift that makes you more persuasive. Two, the easiest way to look and become smarter. And three, a tiny speech habit that's undermining your impact. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, please visit us over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP844. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, you can check out some goodies like the Gold Nugget email list, which lets you get the summary insights from Jonah in an email you can read in about three minutes. We miss some of the fun stories, but you get the actionable wisdom, the to-dos, if you will, the prescriptive goodness. And you also unlock the whole vault of all of these summaries. There's 844 of them now. Hot dog. That's called the Gold Nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's a little bit about Jonah. Jonah Berger is a Wharton professor, internationally best-selling author, and world-renowned expert on change, word-of-mouth, influence, natural language processing, and how products, services, and ideas catch on. He has published over 70 articles in top-tier academic journals, teaches one of the world's most popular online courses, and accounts of his work often appear in places like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Harvard Business Review. Millions of his books, Contagious, A Catalyst, Invisible Influence, and most recently, Magic Words, are in print in over 35 countries around the world. Berger has keynoted hundreds of major conferences and events like South by Southwest, and many others, as well as consulted for organizations like Apple, Google, Amazon, Nike, the Gates Foundation, and many more. Big thanks to Jonah for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Now, here's Jonah. Jonah, welcome back to How To Be Awesome At Your Job. Thanks so much for having me back, I appreciate it. Well, I had so much fun chat with you last time, and I know you're gonna have a boatload of wisdom reading through your, your latest book, Magic Words, I'm just going to dig right in because I think you have too much great stuff for the time we have. So could you start us off with perhaps one of the most particularly striking, surprising, counterintuitive discoveries you've made while putting together this work? I think the most surprising thing to me is uh, the bigger question, which is that
2: everything we do. Involves language, and I should put an almost in there because there are things we do, like breathing, that don't don't involve language. But but almost everything we do involves language, right? We write emails, uh, we build PowerPoint presentations, uh, we make phone calls, we make presentations, we talk to either face to face or through digital means. Everyone in our in our lives, words are how we convince others. They're how we connect with loved ones. They're how we hold audiences' attention. We spend almost uh, every Waking moment of the day using language in, in one way or another. Right? Even our even our own private thoughts rely on, on language. And yet, while we spend a lot of time using language, and sometimes we think about what we want to communicate. Right? So I'm I'm making a presentation today. Okay, my goal is to to get people to support this initiative, and so I'm going to talk about it in a way that will get them to support it. We think a lot less about the way we use those words, and that's a mistake because it, subtle shifts in the language we use can have a huge effect on our impact. right? Certain words can increase persuasion by 50%. Certain language patterns are much better uh, at holding an audience's attention. And, and the words we use can even impact uh, social connection with, with the ones we, we love. And so the big idea behind magic words is we can use language better, whether at home or at work, uh, whether convincing clients holding attention by understanding how language works and how we can use it and and understanding the power of magic words, we can increase our impact in in every aspect of our
1: lives. Well, Jonah, that's so much good stuff. Could you give us an example of a subtle shift or two in language that has a huge impact?
2: Yeah, let me give you a really simple one. So Often, when we're trying to get people to do something,
1: whether at
2: home or, or at work, we often use verbs. And what do I mean by that? Well, we say, hey, can you help me out? Right? We use the, the verb to help, mm-hmm. to ask for, for help. Similarly, if, if we're a nonprofit we're, and we have a get out the vote campaign, we might send uh, mail to people's houses saying, please go vote, right? Mm-hmm. Vote is an action that we're hoping that, that people will take. But it turns out that a, a subtle shift, even a couple of letters in those type of appeals, can greatly increase the likelihood that people do what we, what we want them to do. So let's take something as, as simple as helping. A number of years ago, some scientists at Stanford University did a study uh, at a local elementary school. Where they made a mess in a classroom, and they asked students for help cleaning up that mess. And for some students, they used the typical approach. They said, "Hey, can you help clean up?" As we often do. But for another set of students, they changed the request very slightly. They said, "Hey, can you be a helper mm-hmm. and clean up?" Now, now, helper. I don't have to tell you is very very similar to to help, right? It's just adding the word er uh, at the end. But that subtle shift led to a thirty percent increase. In the portion of children that, that helped, and it's it's not just kids and classrooms. There's it happens with adults in a variety of different domains. So in a in another study, when individuals were trying to get folks to vote, they changed the pitch they used in, in the mailers to people's houses. Some people got the traditional pitch: "Hey, please go vote." Others were asked, "Would you be a voter?" and go vote. Now, again, voter and vote are even closer, right? They're, they're just adding an R to the end of it. But they're asking people to vote-er, to be a vote-er, increase the percentage of people that turned out to vote by over 15%. And you might be sitting there going, well, okay, help-helper, vote-voter, what's what's the difference? And, and the key insight here is that by turning actions, voting, helping, into identities, being a voter, being a helper, can make people more likely to take those actions. And and the reason why is the difference between things like uh, identities versus versus actions. So imagine I told you about two people. I say, hey, I have two friends. One of them runs and the other one is a runner. If, if I told you about those two people, which one would you guess runs more often? The person who runs or the person who is a runner?
1: Well, it's funny. The, the identity is a runner. sounds like they run more. And even when yeah. I did you reminded me when I did my first triathlons, I didn't consider myself a triathlete yet. It was like, well, I mean, I walked the last half of the run portion. So am I really a, tri- a triathlete? I did a triathlon, <laughs> but am I a triathlete, right? Yeah. Notice the difference.
2: And so what you're pointing out is that these identities, they seem bigger and more long lasting, right? Someone who runs, yeah, once in a while they go for a run. Someone who's a runner, well, that's a part of of who they are, right? That's, that's, an, that's an identity. And so we all, want to hold desirable identities, right? We all want to see ourselves as smart and athletic and knowledgeable and, and helpful in a variety of different things. And so actions like voting or helping, yeah, those are good things. I want to do those things. But if those actions are an opportunity to claim a desired identity, to be a voter, to see myself as a voter, to see myself as a helper, well, now I'm much more likely to do, to do those things because the identity is more desirable than the action. And so if we want to motivate people to do something, frame actions as as identities right we want to we want to get people to do one of these things frame them in, in that way the same thing goes with the negative side right uh, losing is bad Being a loser is even worse. Mm -hmm. Cheating is bad. Being a cheater is even worse. And so research shows in a classroom context, for example, you want to get students not to cheat. Don't ask them not to cheat. Say, don't be a cheater. Mm -hmm. It greatly decreased the percentage of people that cheated. And so I think this has implications not only for motivating uh, others or getting them to do what we want, but also even how we describe uh, ourselves or or others. So um, on a resume, for example, we could say we're hardworking, or we're a hard worker. We could describe a colleague as being innovative or being an innovator, right? Just like with running and, or run and, and runner, it's going to seem more like a stable trait, like it's a who you are if it's described as an identity rather than an, than an action. So again, subtle shift in language, just a couple of letters can increase our impact in a
1: variety of ways. That is so good. And Well, one, it sounds a lot easier than what I try to do with my kids. I tell them I have a mission for the super cleanup team, which works. I'm going to try.
2: (laughs) But that's a desirable identity, right? Cleaning up. Yeah, Uh, Cleaning up's not that fun. But being a member of the super cleanup team Well, hold on. If
1: being a member requires that I clean up, maybe I'll I'll clean up because I want to be a member. Yeah. And then, well, now I'm thinking about identities. So I guess there's don't litter, don't be a litter bug. I mean, they just invented that word. (laughs) Like and likewise, is it Home Goods who had that ad campaign about like you're a thrifter or be a thrifter? And it's funny. It's like I don't know if being a thrifter is a desirable thing. And I guess it depends on who your segment
2: is. Exactly right, right? So Lo Bean has this campaign: be an outsider. Uh huh. Right, Uh, and be and looks like Bean, but not everybody wants to be an outsider. Not everybody wants to be a thrifter. But the type of people that are interested your your target segment. Probably, probably does right. Most people want to be a listener. Being a listener is not a bad thing, and so being a leader is not a bad thing. And so, rather than ask people to listen or lead, ask them to be a leader. Ask them to be a be a
1: listener. Mm -hmm. Okay. So within the book, we've got six such principles, and here we've talked a good bit about activating identity. Can you share with us what are the other key principles? Yeah. So, so let's step
2: back for a second. So as you noted, there are six key principles uh, or types of language. I actually gave one example of, of one type. There are other examples of that type. But just to talk about the types for a second, they actually can be organized in a framework called the SPEAK framework. That's S-P-E-A-C-C. I'm not clever enough to come up with a word that starts with K, so I'm stuck with two Cs at the end. But that stands for the language of similarity. Posing questions is our P. E is emotion. A is agency and identity. um, And the two Cs are confidence and, and concreteness. And each of these are a type of language that we can use to increase our impact. So we just talked, for example, some about the language of agency and identity. They are the identity activating identities. But the same is true more, more generally with other types of examples there. There's some nice work, for instance, that shows that when we're, we're stuck on a, a tough problem, rather than thinking about what we should do, thinking about what we could do uh, makes us more creative. It makes us a, a better problem solver even if we don't end up doing one of those things that we came up with that we could do, because sometimes things that we could do aren't actually good solutions. But by thinking about what we could do rather than what we should do, we think about a, a broader range of possibilities, and that helps us reach a better outcome overall. And so a subtle shift in language there can help make us more creative and, and a, a better uh, problem solver. Or, or think about something as simple as the word you. Again, only only three letters here. You, it seems like a very small word, but lots of research that I and others have uh, conducted shows that you is extremely powerful. Work I've done on social media content, for example, shows that uh, the word you increases engagement. We want people to click on, uh, like uh, our content, engage with it, or open an email. Words like you in a subject line holds people's attention, acts like a stop sign, suggests something is relevant for them, and encourages them to, to pay attention. At the same time, you can also be damaging if it's used in, in the wrong ways, in the wrong context. Often, if you look at customer support pages, for example, pages that use the word you more often, people find them less helpful someone says, well, you know, to fix your computer, you need to reboot and do this. Someone might be sitting there going, well, I need to do all this work. Why is it, why is it my fault, <laughs> right? You can suggest blame in a negative way. And so you isn't just a word. It's a word that can do a lot of work and, and we can use it to increase our impact.
1: Ooh, that is, that's powerful stuff. And, and I'm thinking when I see social media posts or, or news items in the headline, which says something like, I don't know, the war in Ukraine, colon, what you need to know, I resent it. Because I'm like, you don't know who I am. Publication, thank you very much. Uh-huh, very like you, you have not yep. researched me. You have not segmented me. Yeah, and, good. And everybody has different sets of needs, values, preferences, yes, wishes good. with regard to uh, this news article. So that's pretty, uh, pretty freaking presumptuous of you <laughs> to say this is what I need to know. Thank you very well, much.
2: Yeah, Good. So, so what you're talking about is how you can evoke reactants. Yeah. Right? So yeah, we find in online reviews or in word of mouth, if someone says, I like this, We're like, okay, you like it. If someone says, you'll like this, we say, well, how do you know I'll I'll like it? And so, yes, if someone knows you or if the content is relevant to you, then you can ask, you can sort of act as an intensifier, right? makes it even better, right? I like playing basketball, you know, six tips you can use to be a better basketball player. Well, suddenly I'm even more interested. Whereas if it's like six tips you can use to be a better water polo player, which is not relevant to me, I might have that reactance. And so again, it's, I'm not suggesting that you is is great in all situations, but it's a powerful word that we can we can use with great impact if we understand.
1: All right. Well, I'd love to dig into a few of the additional principles here. How about asking the right questions? Yeah, I love the area of questions.
2: I think it's fascinating. And I've talked about questions a little bit. I talked about questions a little bit in my last book, The Catalyst. And, and the more I've learned about the power of asking questions and the more research has come out about questions, you really realize they're useful in so many different ways. I think many of us think that questions are a tool to collect information, and they are. Questions do help us collect information, but they really do a lot more than just help us collect information. So one area that I think we're, we're mistaken about the use of questions is, is asking for advice. So often when we're, we're dealing with a, a tough problem that we can't solve or a difficult situation, we try many things we often don't ask people for advice. And, and why? Well, we assume they're busy. They won't know the answer, or even worse, they'll think less of us. Right? So, in a, in a work context, am I really going to ask my boss uh, for their advice on something? Maybe they'll think, "Why didn't you figure it out yourself? Why don't you know that already?" It makes it seem like I don't don't know something. And so, some research looked into whether asking for advice was a bad idea. And so, they ran a number of experiments in which people asked for advice versus didn't, and they looked at the outcomes. and They they found something really interesting, which is we all think that asking for advice is going to hurt us. It's going to make people think we're less intelligent and less competent and all those things. That's not what happens. In fact, the exact opposite happens. Asking for advice makes us look smarter and more competent and has a variety of benefits for how we're perceived. And the reason why is really simple. People are self-centered. People think that they give great advice, right? We all think our advice is good. And so when someone comes along and asks us for advice, we go, wow. They're a pretty smart person, right? They knew to ask me for advice. They must be smart themselves. And so asking for advice makes us seem better, not worse, more competent, not less competent. And that's just one example, but it's not just about asking questions, about the type of questions we ask. Certain questions are better uh, than others, and there are certain situations where types of questions can be, can be more effective than, than others as well. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's lay it on us. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about what types of questions to ask. And often when we ask questions, we ask questions to be polite. So I can't remember back to the beginning of this call, but you probably said something like, hey, how are you? And I probably said something like, how are you? And we, we both asked a question. How are you is a question. But that isn't actually a question that has a big impact. It is a question, but it's more being polite. It shows that we're a polite person, but it it doesn't have as big of an impact. Researchers looked at um, hundreds of social interactions, everything from speed dating and workplace interactions, and they found a particular type uh, of question was very useful. It made uh, people like the others they interacted with more, and dating context even made them want to go on a second date. And that type of questions was what are called follow-up questions. And so a follow-up question goes something along the lines of, of this, right? If someone says, oh, yeah, I really enjoyed that presentation, we could say, yeah, I did too. Or we could say something like, oh, neat, what did you like about it? If someone says they had a tough day, we could say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Or we could say, oh, what made it so difficult? You know, tell me more. I want to understand more about what happened. Questions that follow up on what something someone said show a few things. First of all, shows that we paid attention. can't ask a follow-up question if you didn't pay attention to what someone said. But second of all, it shows that you care. Like, you care not only enough to pay attention, but you care enough to ask for more. It shows that we're responsive, and because we're responsive, it makes people like us more. And so it's not just about asking any questions. Sure, we can ask questions to be polite, and that's that's fine. But the more we're asking questions to be responsive, to show that we care, the more they're going to lead people to like us more.
1: Okay. I dig it. Well, now can we hear a little bit about conveying confidence, and <laughs> you say... I just, I love your table of contents. Why Donald Trump is so persuasive no matter what you think of him? Lay it on us, Jonah. <laughs> I've enjoyed writing popular
2: press books because it's a, a little bit like that old Michael Jordan quote like, everybody buys sneakers, right? Like, you have, you're, you're entitled to your own viewpoint, but unless you want half the world to hate you, you probably shouldn't get too difficult, deepened into politics. And so I, I want to frame this discussion by saying whoever you support, whatever you believe in is, is great. But yeah, whether you like someone or not, Donald Trump in particular, you can't deny that he is amazingly good at selling ideas, right? Whether you like him or you hate him, he's done a fantastic job of making a large set of people believe what he has to say. And so if you like Donald Trump, you're probably saying, great, you know, it's wonderful. And if you hate Donald Trump, you're saying, oh, God, you know, why is he like that? But I think a smarter strategy is to step back and say, well, what makes him so effective? Right? It's easy to complain about him. What makes him so uh, effective? Why is he so persuasive or convincing? What does he do? that makes him so uh, impactful, right? There's one of the the speeches he made when he first announced his candidacy. He said something like, I'm going to build a great wall. Nobody builds walls better than me. I'll build them very inexpensively. Our country's in trouble. We don't have victories anymore. We used to have them. We don't have them anymore. When's the last time anybody saw us beating China in a trade deal? I beat China all the time, all the time. Now, critics Listen to that speech and said, oh, God, this is ridiculous. It's overly simplistic. It's empty. You know, it's filled with bluster. And yes, less than a year later, he was elected president. So, so what did he do? What does he do in his speeches that make him so impactful? And it's not just him, right? So if you look at folks like Steve Jobs, if you look at startup founders that get a lot of attention, if you look at leaders that everybody listens to, if you listen to so-called gurus, they often do one particular thing, which is they speak with a great deal of certainty, mm-hmm. right? When when they talk, other people listen because they seem like what they're saying is obviously true.
1: Yeah, we're gonna right? win so much, you're gonna get tired of winning. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, that's like, like, as certain as you can get. I don't know what that means, <laughs> yeah.
2: but I like it. <laughs> right? I like winning. Who doesn't like winning? Who wouldn't like winning more? And if you dig a little deeper, you might say, well, what does winning mean? How are we going to get there? But forgetting that for a second, because that's what most of us are doing when we're listening to something. If someone says something we like is going to happen a lot, we go, great. Right? That's, that's what, we're, what we're, we're paying attention to. And so Trump is just one example of someone who speaks with a great deal uh, of certainty, right? And you alluded to this a little bit yourself, right? Something isn't just true. It's certainly true. It's definitely going to occur. It's obvious. It's unquestionable. Every time, this is clearly what's going to happen. It's guaranteed. It's unambiguous. He uses a lot of language that is is really certain. And in a variety of contexts, research shows that certainty is, is good. Work on financial advisors, for example shows that people prefer more financial advice certain financial advisors even though those financial advisors that are certain aren't any more accurate right uh, even in some cases where they're making more extreme judgments people like them more and want to choose them more because they seem so certain right if someone seems really certain it's hard to not want to go along right because they seem so confident about what what they're saying contrast that though with the way most of us communicate so, so I'm an academic, and I'm terrible at this. Right? I do this all the time. I often say, well, I think this, or it seems like this will happen, or maybe this is true, or this might work, or, or probably this will, will happen. Right? As a consultant, as a speaker, we default to those ticks all the time. Those are called hedges. Right? What what hedges do is they make it clear that we're not so sure, mm-hmm. right They hedge. They don't say this is definitely true. This says this might be true. Is it going to rain tomorrow? It's definitely going to rain tomorrow. It might rain t- tomorrow. Is this the, this the good strategy? It's Certainly a great strategy. It might be. It's probably a good strategy. Mm-hmm. The problem though, And I'm not saying that hedging is never good, right? Because sometimes things are uncertain. But the problem is that hedges reduce our impact. They undermine our impact. Because while not only do they share our opinion, they simultaneously say, we are not sure about our own opinion. And if we're not sure, it makes people think we're less certain or less confident, which makes them less likely to listen to us. And so if if our goal is to communicate uncertainty, great. Right? Maybe there, there, there are times for hedging. I'm not saying we all need to be like Donald Trump. There are certainly times for hedging. But if we want people to listen to us and we want people to be persuaded, we need to ditch the hedges. right? Unless we're using them strategically, unless we're using them on purpose, don't just say it because it's convenient. Don't just say it because it's a verbal tick when we're filling in space. right? And second, when we do need to hedge, there are some types of hedges that are more persuasive than, than others. So contrast, for example, if I said this seems like a good strategy versus I said this seems to me like this is a good strategy if I said this might work versus I think that this might work right in in some cases I'm saying something is generally uncertain it seems or it might work in another I'm adding my personal perspective and we can call these general and personal hedges right personal hedges are saying I'm adding a personal pronoun I me my to whatever, whatever I'm saying. And it turns out that adding these personal pronouns in actually makes us more persuasive because it makes us seem more confident, right? If I want to show there's some uncertainty and rather than saying, it seems like this will work, it seems to me like this will work. The listener goes, okay, well, you're a little bit uncertain, but you're willing to say that it seems to you to attach it to yourself. And so because of that, you seem more confident. And I'm more likely to do what what you suggested. And so if we have to hedge, let's hedge in a way that doesn't undermine uh, our impact or what we're trying to get across.
1: Well, yeah, Joe, you got me thinking like you could totally say that is definitely a major risk. And, and, you know, it's you haven't said it's certainly going to happen. You said it's a risk. Risks by definitions have a probability. Yes. Or, what that absolutely could be a huge opportunity for us. It could be an opportunity. I mean, we don't know how it's going to turn out, but you can you can throw those adverbs and those that intonation of of certainty on oh, yes. something, even when there's uncertainty. It's definitely one of the, the paths we should pursue.
2: Definitely. Rather than saying <laughs> it's not clear what path we should pursue, saying it's definitely one of the paths. I am of? very certain about a narrow—and so what you did right there, and this is probably what, you, what you're trying to do, but you did very, very nicely, is you shrank the world, but you added certainty, right? We're always certain about something, right? Mm-hmm. There's always something there we're certain about. We may not be certain about the big picture. Right. We may not be sure that a particular strategy is going to work, but we may be very certain about a part of that strategy. We may be certain that this strategy is worth considering. Right. And so there, there are ways to add certainty in a way that doesn't make it seem like the entire world is uh, obviously, obviously clear. And so I think, again, right, in times where we want to be clear that there is uncertainty and there are two sides and we need to be careful and all those things, and yes, use hedges. I'm not saying not to. But in times where we want to be persuasive, let's be careful about hedging just because it's, it's convenient.
1: Okay, certainly. Now can we hear a bit about
2: leveraging concreteness? <laughs> yes, yeah, and so to, to talk about this, I'll share a, a story of mine. Which there are a couple of personal stories in in this book, and and this one is is one that really helped interest me in a in a range of the topics in in this book. So a few years ago, I was coming back from a consulting project. I think it was in, in Dallas or something in the in the area, and I was uh, in an Uber on the way to an airport to fly back home. Was very excited to sort of go see my family. And I got the text message that every traveler dreads, which is, your flight has been delayed. And it's often the case, um, you know, they had rebooked me on something. And it was the next day. It was a connecting flight. It was like, you know, 36 hours later. It was a terrible, terrible option. So I, I call customer service and, and try to improve the situation. And after sort of talking back and forth with them for, for 10 or, you know, even 12 minutes, the situation was not much better. And, and I was frustrated. So I, I get off the phone. And the very nice Uber driver had been forced to, to listen to what I had to say. Said, oh, you know, it sounds like you're you're really frustrated. And I was like, Yeah, you know, but it's gotta be tough being a customer service representative. Like all you do is hear from people like me all day who are frustrated and want to get home and are stuck and are, you know, are, are sort of annoyed. And it must be a difficult job. And he goes, Yeah, but you know, my my daughter's actually a customer service representative and, and she loves it. And I go, What do you mean? And he was like, Well, she she loves the job and she's so good at it that actually they've now gotten her to train other people to talk to customers. And I sat there going, one, that's really interesting, and two, what is she doing that mm-hmm. makes her so effective? Right, like what's like just like Donald Trump, right? We can we can sit there going, I like him or I hate him, or we can sit there going, something he's doing is working. What is it? And so with a, a great colleague, Grant Packard uh, of mine, great great friend and colleague, we went uh, and got hundreds of customer service calls and analyzed the language of those calls to look at what increases customer satisfaction. And we also have data on whether people purchase again from the firm. So, you know, are they happy once they get off that call? And does that call lead people to come back and buy things from the firm in the future? And, and obviously, problem solving matters, right? So, so yes, it matters whether they get me on a better flight, whether they find my bags, whether they solve the problem. But we looked at controlling for that. Can the language you use shape customer satisfaction? And, and I think there's a, a key challenge. That comes up in customer satisfaction. That comes up in a a variety of areas of life, right? It's not just customer satisfaction. It's also when we're when we're talking to a a group, or you know, even even uh, chatting with a a spouse or a friend, we want to signal that we're listening. We've talked about this a, a little bit already, but when someone calls customer service, we don't just want to solve their problem. We want to show them that we care. When somebody at the office talks to us about something, we want to show them that we're interested in in what they have to say. And so, how can we use language? To show listening, right? We can shake our heads, yes, but how can we use language to show listening? How can we use language to show caring? And it's clear the companies care about this, right? Because when you're on hold, they often say things like, "Oh, your call is so valuable to us. Thanks for staying on hold." Right. Twenty five minutes into you sitting on hold, and you're sitting there going, "F you!" If my call was valuable to you, you would answer the phone in less than twenty five minutes. So they they want to show they care, but they don't know how to. We found, though, that a certain type of language shows listening. And that type of language is, is what we can describe as concrete language. And so what does concrete mean? Well, if you can touch something, if you can feel it, if you can smell it, if you can see it, it's concrete. A table is concrete. Trees are, are concrete. A cup is concrete. A uh, strategy, not so concrete, right? Soon, the word soon, not so, so concrete. The word tomorrow, well, that's more concrete, right? I have a sense of when tomorrow is. I don't know uh, exactly when soon is. Beautiful, that's a nice word, but not very concrete. Striking red color, very concrete. I can see that color in in my mind. And so we found that using concrete language increases customer satisfaction, makes them more satisfied at the end of the call, makes them more likely to buy more from the firm rather than saying something like, oh, you know, we'll get you a refund soon. Your money will be there tomorrow is a much more concrete way uh, of saying the same thing. Because the challenge often as a a customer service representative and, and anyone trying to help someone else out We tend to use language that works in all situations. Yeah. I can help you with that, right? I'm happy to solve your problem, whether that problem is a delayed flight, a lost bag, anything at all. And while that's kind of Swiss Army language, works in a variety of situations, really good for us, it doesn't show someone we listen right? It's so general that it doesn't show someone we heard what they, they said. But concrete language, similar to what we talked about already, shows that you paid attention, that you understood what was said, and that you care enough to, to do something about it. It shows listening. And so as a result, it has a, a variety of, of benefits, both in, in customer satisfaction, but in, in other domains as, as well.
1: Ooh, Jonah, that's so good. And I'm thinking about my own customer service experiences as the customer i really like that concreteness when they say you're the third person in line on the and it will wait times approximately nine minutes it's like okay it's like i i, I really understand these expectations and uh contrarily <laughs> i get really irritated with these chat bots <laughs> who act like they can solve any problem but when push comes to shove they really can't which is why i'm there in the first place it's like if if i were if this were an easy problem it would be loaded into the interactive voice response the ivr systems of the the push button or, or or whatever and i would have already solved it via automated portals. So when I'm talking to a human, it's thorny, you know? <laughs> like yes. we got some nuances about a a changed billing shipping address, you know? And that that's why I need to go down the route of, of talking to someone. So it is quite irritating when I get the general language which isn't even true. I can help you with that. I was like, well, we'll see. We'll see. Yes, chatbot, if you've got the right stuff, but I have my doubts. <laughs> I I certainly agree and and I think
2: you know, everyone would like um, uh, when they call customer service to be heard and to be listened to, to feel like someone cares. And and uh, as a customer service agent, um, you only have so many degrees of freedom, right? You can't, uh, you know, create a flight that doesn't exist. Um, but just as uh, someone listens to a colleague at work or a spouse at home, by using the right language, you can make it clear that you listened, that you heard and that you care, which can on the margin make things better.
1: All right. So Jonah, tell me, anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about your favorite things?
2: No, you know, I think the only thing I would say, which which we sort of started out talking about at the beginning, is we all use language all the time. Language is how we convince clients and customers. Language is how we change the minds of bosses and colleagues. Language is how we connect with our loved ones at at home. By understanding the power of magic words, we can use language in, in these situations more effectively and in all areas of our life.
1: All right. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: I think one quote that I I like a lot is from Albert Einstein, and I'm going to get it probably a little bit wrong here, but he says something along the lines of, uh, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. And I think it's, it's really easy to think things are complicated. Many things are complicated, but part of the job uh, of a good communicator is figuring out how to meet their audience more than halfway and, and simplify it. And so I, I always found that quote quite motivating, even if I don't always achieve what it, what it sets out to do.
1: All right. And a favorite book?
2: One of my favorite books is a book called Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. Yeah. It's a great book on communicating, and I, I find myself going back to it again and again over time.
1: And a favorite tool, something you use to be more awesome at your job.
2: (laughs) I have started using voice to text more in a variety of areas uh, of my life, Uh, whether writing emails, whether writing uh, articles, not just texting on the phone. It's not always perfect, but it does an amazing job of allowing us to dump more thoughts out quickly, which I think is, is really great. One thing to be careful of the, the modality we communicate through, the medium we communicate to, speaking rather than writing, does change what we say. So we need to be a little bit careful. But I think it's a great productivity tool and a good way to express ourselves.
1: Well, Joan, I got to follow up here. I've been disappointed with Dragon Naturally Speaking. How are you <laughs> rocket and rolling? Is there a particular piece of software, or is it built into the Mac OS?
2: I'm just using whatever comes with with Microsoft. So whatever comes with Microsoft Word, uh, whatever comes with uh, Outlook, I'm using that. And I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not expecting perfect. I am amazed that it captures generally what I'm saying, and it gives me a place to start and sharpen some, some
1: thoughts. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch with you, where'd you point them? Oh, yeah.
2: Well, Magic Words is available wherever books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you like to go for books. Uh, You can find me at my first name, uh, lastname.com. So just jonaberger.com. There's a bunch uh, about the book there, a bunch of free resources, one-pagers, guides, and the like. And you can also find me at j1berger on Twitter or on LinkedIn.
1: All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. Think about how you can use language more effectively. We all have things we want to communicate, but we often think
2: less about the specific words we use, and there's a lot of opportunity there. So by, by understanding magic words and, and their power, we can increase our impact in every aspect of
1: life. All right, Jonah, this has been a treat. I wish you much fun and many magical words. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really love Jonah's take on confidence. It really got me thinking, because sometimes I think about confidence, if there's too much of it. If it's disproportionate to your actual certainty, it almost feels like a form of dishonesty. And in fact, a con man or confidence man, that's some sort of related etymological roots going on over there. And I liked what Jonah had to say in terms of you can have conviction in your tone of voice, and yet at the same time, share that there is some risk, there is some uncertainty, there are some unknowns. That we can't quite predict, and yet not come across as well. I don't know. This might be a good idea too. That's definitely an option worth exploring. This sounds like a risk that would be well worth taking. You you get the idea. Is that you can convey there's some uncertainty without being dishonest, and yet also have some oomph, some gusto, some confidence coming through, which is super impactful. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com/ep844.